Hello and welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source of all things IFRS. Technical accounting matters, business issues, current standard setting and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Ruth Preedy. In this episode, we're going to talk about June IFRS news. Therefore, I'm joined with a collection of people in the studio today to talk about some of the hot topics. We've got Tony DeBell, who's going to talk to us about the impact of tax of triggering Article 50 in the UK. We're joined by Gail Tucker, who's going to tell us about the new insurance standard, IFRS 17. And we're also joined by Sandra Thompson, who's going to give us a few insights into IFRS 9. On the 30th of March this year, the UK government gave formal notice of its intention to leave the EU. This notice has triggered the process of negotiating the UK's exit, which is likely to last of at least two years. There are a number of considerations for financial statements, but today Tony DeBell is going to focus on the impact of tax on financial statements. So Tony, please could you tell us about the impact on income taxes of Article 50? And I think that's probably the most difficult question because at the moment it's just not clear. There are quite a large number of tax reliefs and exemptions that apply to transactions between entities in the UK and other EU member states. Now, the process of the UK leaving the EU means that, in theory, all of those exemptions and reliefs will no longer apply because the UK will no longer be a member of the EU. However, there's the process of negotiation, which will last two or more than two years, as as you suggested, that might see some or all of those reliefs either replaced or replaced with something that's just a bit different. So does Article 50 mean there is a definite change in tax law? No, it doesn't mean there's a definite change. So, as I said, there are a lot of exemptions and reliefs that are available for transactions between members of the EU. Now, it is possible that all of those reliefs could be replaced with something that is very similar as a result of the negotiations between the UK and the EU. However, it's perhaps more likely, although at this stage we don't know, that in the end there will be some different arrangements. But at the moment we don't know, and it's not for sure, that there will be changes in tax legislation. So one of the concepts in IS-12 is, is it substantially enacted or not? Mm -hmm. So how do we work that out in this current period of change? Well, I think some have suggested that the UK's notice of intention to leave the EU could be revoked. And so therefore, the triggering of Article 50 and the, the, the triggering of the process of leaving could therefore be overturned. Uh, at the moment, I, I think it's fair to say that that hasn't actually been tested. Uh, and I think the best thing that, that, that management can do at the moment is to assume that withdrawal will happen and then consider the potential tax consequences of that withdrawal. Okay, so how does all of this work in the context of IS-12? So... What we have is an uncertainty about uh, what the the, the income tax position is going to be in two years' time and the extent to which these reliefs will remain or will be withdrawn or will be changed. IS-12 doesn't explicitly address income tax uncertainties. However, it does require that companies measure income taxes, including uncertainties, at the amount they expect to pay. I think the standard envisages a process in which national governments or parliaments consider and enact tax laws. What we have here is something that's just different because the UK has announced its intention to leave, it's triggered Article 50, 
before the revised arrangements that might take place in the future have, have been agreed. So what we have now is something that is, it's different, I think, to what IS-12 envisages in that it's the beginning rather than the end of a legislative and negotiation process. So what should entities do now? So I think entities should, as I said before, uh, assume that the UK will be leaving uh, the EU and begin to think about the potential tax consequences. My sense is that during the negotiation process, entities might become aware that there are some potential exposures, so there are, there, there are some uh, reliefs or exemptions that entities have been claiming that might no longer be available. But my sense is the outcome is going to be insufficiently clear to determine whether it's probable that there will be an actual tax charge or whether it's um, it, it just probably be too difficult to make a meaningful estimate. And for that reason, I think where, where management and, and entities should focus, uh, certainly in the immediate future, is on making solid, comprehensive disclosures of the potential implications. So good disclosure and then constantly reviewing the situation is your best advice there? Absolutely. And are the regulators saying anything to help? I don't think there has been anything publicly said by regulators, but, but, but my sense is that generally securities regulators at least for the time being, seem to me to be comfortable with an approach in which the potential exposures and the potential consequences of uh, the UK's withdrawal from the EU uh, are disclosed. And I think at this stage, it's probably fair to say that some regulators might be uncomfortable uh, with any accounting. Okay, really helpful, Tony. Thank you very much. So key thing there, really think about your disclosure and uh, keep an eye on news to see what's happening with the changes in tax. Thank you very much. On the 18th of May 2017, IFRS 17, the new insurance standard was finally released after celebrating its 20th birthday. I'm here with Gail Tucker, who's one of our leading insurance technical partners, and she's going to give us the 10 minute lowdown on the new standard. Welcome to the podcast studio, Gail. Thanks, Ruth. It's great to be here. So what's in the scope of IFRS 17? Okay, well, the scope of IFRS 17 is the same as the standard we have today, IFRS 4. So it will cover insurance contracts that an entity issues, all reinsurance contracts, those that an entity issues, but also one that it purchased, and investment contracts with what are called DPF or discretionary participation features. So does that mean it only impacts the insurance industry? Well, clearly the main impact will obviously be insurers. But we need to remember the definition of the insurance contract, which is the same as IFRS 4. It's a contract that one party accepts significant insurance risk from another party by agreeing to compensate the policyholder if a specific future event adversely affects the policyholder. So this could happen between two companies who aren't insurers. So, for example, one of the ones we're looking at is equity release loans that are often issued by banks. Those could meet the definition of insurance contracts. The one thing to remember is that this standard doesn't cover policyholder accounting. So if your companies purchase insurance contracts, they are not within the scope of this standard. Okay, so you still need to keep an eye on the scope even if you're not an insurance company. And what's the big advantage of the new standard? Well, I think the main advantage is comparability. Today in the insurance industry, IFRS 4 allows insurers to use their local gap And that means that you have inconsistent accounting policies even within one set of financial statements, yet alone between different companies. 
IFRS 17 defines clear and consistent rules, and that will result in increasing the comparability of financial statements. I also think it will enhance the transparency and disclosures around insurance contracts as well. Okay, so all really positive things are coming in then. So could you give us an idea of the main changes? Okay, well, the first thing is IFRS 17 requires insurance contracts to be measured using expected future cash flows based on current assumptions. And for some parts of the world, that's a big change, whereas today they have locked in assumptions. Those cash flows are discounted and they'll also include a specific margin for risk. And that discount rate will be current as well. And the third thing is there will be no day one profits on issuing insurance contract. The profit gets recognised over the life of the coverage period based on the passage of time. Okay, and from reading the standard, the main model, they talk about the general model. I think it was also called the building block uh, model. Can you explain what that entails? Indeed. So this building block or general model, it requires entities to measure an insurance contract at the initial recognition at the total of the amount of fulfilment cash flows. And what that means is it's the expected future probability weighted discounted cash flows. I then put on top of that a risk adjustment because these cash flows are uncertain. I compare those cash flows going out to my cash flows going in and hopefully I have more cash going in than going out and that's my future profit. And as I said, that profit doesn't get recognized on day one but that profit gets recognised over the coverage period, unless it's negative. If it's negative, that's an onerous contract, and that gets recognised immediately in the income statement. So it's a gigantic cash flow model. (laughs) Indeed. Whenever you say building block approach, I always think of Lego, so I need to get out of that (laughs) mentality. And are there any other approaches in the standard? Okay, well, the standard has this model that's called the general model, But there are two other, they're not different approaches. I'd like to call them variations on the general building block model. The first one is known as the premium allocation approach. I'm sure it'll get known as the PAA. Now, this is optional. What this allows you to do is for short-term contracts, and those will be ones that are written in the non-life industry, they can use something that effectively, rather than having the complicated building blocks, is very similar to the unearned premium approach that many non-life insurers do use today. We then have in the life insurance industry, insurance contracts with what we call direct participation features. And these are where the amounts that I pay out to my customers are linked to the something like the underlying assets. Um, and I share in the return of those assets with my policyholder. For these certain of these contracts, they can use what's called the variable fee approach. This is another variation of the general module, but this time it's not optional. When you apply the variable fee approach, the entity's share of the fair value changes in the underlying items and also changes in financial risks related to amounts payable to the policyholders because of things like discount rates affecting costs of options and guarantees. All those get put against that CSM or that unearned profit. As a consequence, the fair value changes aren't recognised immediately in the income statement. And I think the key point here is if companies end up using the VFA or variable fee approach model, they will probably see less volatility in their results. And I suspect there'll be a lot of focus on which contracts do qualify to be able to use the VFA approach. So really one new approach with some variations. That sounds like a lot of change. How long have people got? When is the standard effective? 
Okay, so the new standard is mandatory for annual periods starting on or after the 1st of January 2021. Earlier application is permitted. I'll be astounded if many people (laughs) take that up. Um, You are allowed to adopt it early if you've already adopted IFRS 9 and IFRS 15 because there is an element of linkage there. I think the other thing to remember is for many insurers who are going to be adopting IFRS 17, they're likely not to be doing IFRS 9 next year, but will have taken advantage of the deferral option under IFRS 9. So there will be a big change for insurance companies accounting because they will have IFRS 9 at the same time that they adopt IFRS 17 on the liability side of the balance sheet. And I can imagine that they need to get their head around the models and the debits and credits, but this feels like a big systems impact as well. So there'll be a lot of change internally. You're absolutely right. And all the discussions we've been having with clients, it starts in the finance function, but it's much broader. So it, it not only goes beyond finance and actuarial and system development, but if you think about it, it's how insurance companies tell the story of their results. So it moves over into budgeting, planning, even something may affect product design, distribution. You've got an educational awareness training of boards and actually really importantly, the users and analyst community who are using the results. It, inevitably, it's a bigger change for the life insurers than the non-life insurers. But, you know, we had a session with our analysts earlier this week and clearly they are trying to get their head around what this means for the companies they are using the financial statements of. So it will be a big change. And companies are really starting to think about it now. Because it feels a long way off, but that's a lot to get through. So start looking now if you haven't already. Where can we help? Where can people find out more about the new standard? Okay, so we did a live webcast on the 31st of May, which is you can now download off our website and listen to those. And we had Daryl Scott from the ISB, one of the board members, joined us on that webcast. We'll also have already issued an in-brief and we'll have lots of publications that are available on our website at pwc.com slash IFRS. But please also do talk to your local PwC contacts. They will be delighted to speak more and take you through some of the complexities of this standard. Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us today, Gail. I'm sure we'll hear more about IFRS 17 as time goes on, but that was a brilliant 10-minute lowdown. Next up in the podcast studio, we've got Sandra Thompson, who is our financial instruments leader, and she's going to talk to us about some of the latest standard setting in IFRS 9. So that's on debt modification. So under current IS39, Sandra, how do we treat debt modification? Well, when a company renegotiates its borrowings, its debt, the first thing it has to do from an accounting perspective is decide whether the terms are so significantly different that that's deemed to be new debt. If it is, then you de-recognise your old debt, you fair value new debt, you start again. If a company concludes that the terms are not so significantly different that it's new debt, then you carry on as if it was existing debt, and the first thing you need to do is then update your carrying value. The cash flows have changed, they've been renegotiated, so you take the new cash flows, discount them the original effective interest rate, and then update the carrying amount. Now, that carrying amount will be different from what was on the balance sheet before, so the obvious next question is, well, what do you do with the difference? And under IS39 today, you could spread it forwards by adjusting the EIR, or you could take it immediately to the income statement. In practice, the vast majority of companies will spread it forwards by adjusting their effective interest rate in the future. So what was the particular question that was posed to the IFRIT recently on that? Well, the question was whether that still holds under IFRS 9. IFRS 9 is clear that when assets are modified, 
then you don't spread the difference forward. You take it immediately to the income statement. So the question that was asked of the IFRIC was, well, what about the liability side? Does the same apply? So can companies no longer spread forwards is different? Well, they have to take it immediately to the P&L when the modification happens. And um, what did the IFRIC tentatively decide? Well, yeah, they decided, yes, you do the same for assets. So in summary, you can no longer spread forward the difference you get on the modification. You will have to take it to the P&L immediately. And these can be quite big numbers. Yeah, that could be a really big impact for lots of companies. What else do they need to think about? Well, it needs to be clear that IFRIC's decision was only under IFRS 9. So there's no need to change what you're doing today under IFRS 39. Having said that, when you get to IFRS 9, most likely in 2018, IFRS 9 is retrospective. So that means if you've done a debt modification in the past, you'll have to restate it as part of your transitioning to IFRS 9, and there'll be an impact on opening retained earnings, and there'll be an impact on the finance cost on that borrowing going forwards. Okay, so anyone that is looking at that transition at the moment and they've got a modification, they should definitely keep an eye out for this. Definitely. Okay, and we talked earlier this is a tentative decision by IFRIC. Does that mean it's official gap yet? No, it's not. So if you said it's a tentative decision, if we put it out for comment, the comment period is now closed, and if it will rediscuss those comments, probably in the autumn, we have to wait and see, um, and then they will or won't confirm the decision. Having said that, before IFRIC put out their tentative decision, they did go and check with the board what they thought, and the board was unanimous that they thought this was the answer under IFRS 9, so it, it may well not change. Okay, so people really need to almost watch this space in terms of the next IFRIC meetings when it comes up on the agenda. Yeah, I'd be saying two things to clients. The first is do an inventory, know what you've got. As I said, actually working out what the numbers can be on transition can be tricky, in particular if you've got multiple renegotiations of the same borrowing. And then the second thing is watch this space, wait and see if this decision is or isn't confirmed. Brilliant. Thanks, Sandra. That was really helpful. A little bit there on some of the latest on debt modification. And we can update you in a further podcast um, when that gets finalised. Thank you for joining us today with our IFRS News June edition of our podcast, keeping you up to date with some of the latest standard setting activity. As a recap, we were joined by Tony DeBell, who talked about some of the tax implications of uh, the triggering of Article 50. We were joined by Gail Tucker, who managed to fit in IFRS 17 into 10 minutes. And we also talked about one of the latest IFRIC discussions on debt modifications with Sandra Thompson. Thanks very much for joining us. If you want any more information on any of those topics, you can look at pwc.com forward slash IFRS and look out for the latest edition of IFRS News. I'm your host, Ruth Preedy. Happy accounting. The preceding program was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.